The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 14. We will be reading verses 1 to 24. 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons. They quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house, lest the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair on your head shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means, so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son, together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my Lord the King speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my Lord the King, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my Lord the King has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. 
In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray as we consider God's word together. Father, again this morning, we thank you for the gift of your holy and inerrant word to us. And we pray now that your spirit, who inspired these words and preserved these words, would now write them upon our hearts, that we may receive your word with understanding, that we may respond in obedience and faith. For we ask it through Christ our Lord, your living word. Amen. Well, the chapter that I just read is a story about exile and return. And in many ways, this is the story of the whole Bible. The whole Bible is a story of exile and return. The exile of Adam and Eve from the garden. And God's work of deliverance and salvation to bring them back into his presence. And this was the case for Absalom. Absalom was in exile. He had, he had put himself in exile. He had gone to the land of Geshur because he had murdered his brother Amnon. And after murdering his brother, he went off into exile. And we read at the end of chapter 13 and at the beginning, again at, uh, of chapter 14, that the heart of David went out to Absalom. He was longing for Absalom, who was in exile. And surely as the woman was speaking to David, and she said to him, the king does not bring the banished one home again. You know, that would have cut David to the heart. You're not bringing the banished one home again. And then she reinforces that with a bit of theology. God will not take away life. He he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Look at God as a God who brings the banished one out of exile. David, your heart goes out to your son Absalom. Bring him back out of exile. Well, David was persuaded by the council. He was persuaded by what he heard from the woman, and he brought Absalom back. And so in one sense, this is a story of exile in return. Absalom is brought back. But it's not a true story of, of exile in return. Because, yes, Absalom is brought back, but he's never reconciled to his father. He's never fully restored to his father's house. There's no repentance. There's no justice. He was in exile because he was guilty. That guilt was never addressed, never dealt with. So yes, he returns, but he returns a guilty man. He returns a man under judgment. He returns unrepentant. And because there's no 
justice, because there's no repentance, there's no reconciliation, there's no atonement for sin. And so, yes, he's brought back, but he remains. He remains in exile. So we have this story of exile and return, but it's not a true story of exile and return. That's Absalom's story. So we're going to consider that this morning, Absalom's story. But then we also need to hear the true story of exile and return, our story of exile and return. We've been separated from our Heavenly Father because of our sin. We're in exile. But yes, God devises means to bring the banished one back. And he's devised means to bring us back to himself. So we also need to consider the true story of exile and return this morning. And that true story is a story that is told in Christ. It's the story of our Lord Jesus. But first, Absalom's return from exile. Now, he was in exile because he murdered his brother. And this was not an accident. We read that for two years, from the moment that his brother Amnon had violated his sister Tamar, he had been calmly and coolly plotting a plan to murder his brother, to execute his brother. This was an act of vengeance outside of God's law, and it was very calmly and carefully planned and executed. This is first-degree murder. That's what Absalom committed. It's first-degree murder. And according to God's law, first-degree murder requires the death penalty, a life for a life. Now, Absalom fled. He went into exile to escape justice. And we read here that the heart of David went out to his son. The heart of David went out to Absalom. And as we read this, you know, we are feeling people. And and we're, we're moved by David's longing for his son Absalom. We're moved by that. But we need to be careful as we read a text like this. Because we could just read it and think, oh, look at David, his love for his son. And he wants to restore him back and bring him back. But David's heart going out to his son, that doesn't reflect the love of God. And in fact, David knows that because God himself, when he made the promise to David about his house, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God himself showed David what his love looks like. And we need to hear that again. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you. That's his promise. But then he says in verse 14, I will be to him a father. I will be to your offspring a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, and yes, David's sons have committed iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. God has told David what fatherly love looks like. Yes, my steadfast love will not depart from you, but when you commit iniquity, I will discipline you. That's what fatherly love looks like. Remember Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Well, that's God's fatherly love. Because we're his dearly loved children, he disciplines us. David does not discipline his sons. He does nothing in response to the sin of Amnon. He does nothing in response to the sin of 
Absalom. So yes, we're moved by David's heart going out to Absalom, but let's not sentimentalize this and think, oh, that's love. It wasn't. God showed David what fatherly love looks like. And this shows us that David's heart is actually moving away from the word of God. He's not not viewing his circumstances and what he ought to do as a father and a king in terms of the word of God. And because he's straying away from the word of God, he is vulnerable to the counsel of others. Which isn't wise, which isn't true. As a warning to us, as we stray away from the word of God, we're not keeping the word of God, we're not listening to the word of God, we open ourselves up to being deceived or led astray by other counsel. That's what happens to David. So he's vulnerable to false counsel, and that's precisely what he gets from Joab and through the woman from Tekoa. Now she does it by, in a sense... Getting David right where he's vulnerable. His heart is going out for Absalom. So that's where she goes. And she tells the story of two sons, her two sons. She's a widow. It's a very desperate situation. Her two sons were out in a field. They got into a fight. One of them died. She's a widow. She only has the one son left. And now the community is calling for his life. So she comes to David for justice. I'm, I'm going to lose the inheritance. My husband will lose, lose his name. Intervene. Well, David is moved by this. And so he, he does. He promises, yes, I will. I will intervene for you. But then she turns the tables on him and says, haven't you done the same thing with your own son? Look, it's the same story. Two sons are fighting. One of them dies. If you are going to show mercy on my son, why not show mercy on your own son? Bring him back. And then she reinforces that with a bit of theology. And she tells him, look, this is what God is like after all. He doesn't take away life. That's not what, that's, God doesn't take away life. No, he's gracious, he's always merciful, and he always devises means to bring back the banished one. That's what God does. You need to do the same thing. So she accuses him of something. She accuses him, David, you're guilty of not bringing your son back. You're guilty of that, you need to set that right. But the truth of the matter is that he is not guilty of that. On the one hand, her story is not what happened with Amnon and and Absalom. That's not what happened. They weren't just fighting in a field and things got out of hand and there was no one to separate them. No, no, no. Absalom for two years in vengeance, in cold blood, planned the execution of his brother. It's not the same thing. And secondly, God's word told David how he should respond. David wasn't guilty of not restoring Absalom. He was guilty of not bringing him to justice. That's what God's word required of David. But notice he's convicted of a false guilt. He's made to feel guilty for something he hasn't done. And here is where we need to be careful. 
because we live in a world where there are, there are all kinds of false accusations of guilt being leveled, going out there. Now, as Christians, I'm not going to whitewash the history of Christianity or the history of the church. We are not a spotless, wrinkled bride. So you can look back over church history and you can see all kinds of times when the church failed in its mission to live out the gospel. But we need to be careful as Christians that today we don't feel like we need to repent of the sins of Christians of the past as if they are our sins. But sometimes we'll hear that, like, oh, we need to, I need to repent of the Inquisition. I need to, to repent of the Crusades. I need to repent of Southern slavery. Each of us is accountable for our deeds before God. So we'll hear, we'll hear those stories leveled against us, and we'll think, oh, I'm guilty of that. I bear the guilt of that. It doesn't mean we don't lament what happens. It doesn't mean we don't acknowledge what, what has happened. We need to be careful about that. And also in our relationships with one another, we always need to, to remember that sin is defined by the word of God. It is defined by the law of God. To sin is to break a clear commandment of God. And so, yes, we are, we are fallen human beings. We let one another down. We make mistakes. That's true. So I, I may... You know, I might tell my kids, hey, we're going to have ice cream when we get home. And then either I forget about it or I say, actually, you know what? We're about to have dinner, so no ice cream. Okay. But I'm not sinning against my kids just because I had to change my mind or I didn't think wisely about promising ice cream before dinner. You know, okay, I wasn't, I wasn't sinning against them by doing that. And I remember another circumstance where somebody had done something nice for the church and I'd sent a quick thank you note. But the person felt, well... I didn't really sense your gratitude in that thank you note. Like, I was hoping you would say more. You know, express your thanks a, a, a bit more fully. And so I apologized for that. And I said, you know what? It was a really busy week. I just fired that off. And uh, I'm sorry about that. But then the person really wanted me to repent of sinning against them. You know, you need to ask my forgiveness. And I said, well, I, I don't think I've actually broken a commandment. I don't think I've sinned. So I apologize. But... I don't think I need to repent and ask your forgiveness. And so sometimes even with my own kids, I'll say, look, this happened, it was an accident. Yes, apologize to your sister, but you don't need to repent and ask forgiveness. We repent and ask forgiveness for sin committed, for breaking God's commandment. But we apologize when we, you know, we're, we overlook something or we made a mistake. So we just need to be careful when we're thinking of repentance and forgiveness that it's always clearly grounded in God's word. It's guiding us and we're guided by God's word in that. Now, she, the, the woman says to David, she reinforces this with some theology. God doesn't want to take away life. He doesn't take away life. No, in fact, he devises means to restore the banished one. And you need to do the same. So in a sense, God says to, she's saying, look, God forgives no matter what. That's what God does. He forgives no matter what. Bring back Absalom no matter what. You need to forgive him. You need to bring him back. That's, that's her theology. That's the implication of what she's saying here. And again, that's not true. Because Absalom doesn't need to be forgiven no matter what. 
He shouldn't be brought back no matter what. He's guilty, and that guilt needs to be addressed and dealt with. And in fact, he himself is aware of it. He'll say later on, we didn't read this, but he says later on, if there is guilt in me, he says this to Joab, say to the king, if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. So by David just bringing him back, what he's saying is, oh, you're not guilty. No, we're just going to, in a sense, sweep that sin under under the carpet. Now here's where we need to be careful too in our relationships with one another and our understanding of how forgiveness works. Absalom was never reconciled to his father. He wasn't truly restored from exile because his guilt was never dealt with and he himself was unrepentant. So even though in a sense David is saying, yes, I forgive you, actually there was no forgiveness there. There was no reconciliation there. There was no restoration there. So we can't separate forgiveness from repentance and from justice. We can't separate forgiveness from repentance and from justice. Now as we think about our relationships with one another and we think about forgiveness and what that looks like, think about it this way. When I sin against another person, That sin has broken our relationship. It has broken trust between us. It has separated us. And if we're to be reconciled, then we we need to deal with that sin. And that sin has to be removed so that we can be restored and we can be reconciled. Now, the the principle of, of the gospel, and Paul will save this, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. We are able to forgive one another because we know That our sin has been dealt with on the cross. And and the justice for our sin has been satisfied on the cross. The Lord Jesus died for our sin. He paid the penalty for our sin. The justice of God was satisfied, was fulfilled in his death in our place for our sin. He bore our guilt. And so when a, when a brother or sister, when we, when we sin against one another, we can come to e- each other and under Christ and say, yes, we know that, yes, I lied to you, but I know and you know that that sin was atoned for by the, by the blood of Christ. But then I say, look, I repent of it. I acknowledge that I sin and I repent of that sin. And really what you're doing is you're saying, I, I release that sin to Christ. I know that he's removed it from me. And then you will say, I forgive you because I know I release you from that sin. You've released it in repentance. And and I forgive you. I release it too. I know the blood of Christ covers this. And then you are restored and you're reconciled. Now, can there really be forgiveness and is there really restoration and reconciliation if the other person doesn't repent, if I don't repent? Is there forgiveness? Is there reconciliation? There isn't because the sin is still there. The trust is still broken. Now you may come to me and say, look, you lied to me and I, I forgive you for that. But until I repent of it, until I acknowledge it and repent of it, it hasn't been dealt with. And so even in our relationships with one another, yes, we're called to forgive. We are. 
But there isn't, any, there isn't real forgiveness and there isn't real reconciliation and restoration unless there's also repentance. Absalom never repents, never acknowledges his guilt. There isn't forgiveness there. There isn't reconciliation. And also justice. There needs to be justice too if there's to be true reconciliation and restoration. So yes, if I lie to you and I come to you and I repent of that and confess it to you and you forgive me, okay, we're good. Things are set right. If I come to James and say, James, I stole $100 from you when I was at your house the other day. He can say, well, and I repent of that, James. And he, he can say, I forgive you. I forgive you for that. Okay, we're good. It doesn't necessarily mean things are set right, though. I owe him $100. I still need to give him the $100, and maybe $200. That's what God's word requires. So we don't just screw it around justice. And actually, I will prove the, the sincerity of my repentance by repaying him the money. You know, that proves my repentance. And he is not somehow half-heartedly forgiving me if he expects that I give him the $100 back or the $200. That's not somehow, like, not quite forgiveness. So let's remember that, too. So repentance and justice. I think that, that's necessary. None of this is happening with David and Absalom. So that's, Absalom is not truly reconciled. He's not truly restored. He doesn't truly come back. And actually, in the end, all he really wants is his status as a crown prince to be restored. That's what he wants. And, you know, there's, there's, um, it's actually a tragic scene at the end of this chapter where finally David says, okay, come, come, Absalom. And if you read the final verse of the chapter, this is verse 33. So he came to the king and bowed down about himself on his face on the ground before him, uh, before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now, that sounds like a touching moment, but notice even the language of it. The king, the king, the king. It's not a son coming back to his father. David isn't even named. It's not David. It's just the king. It's very impersonal, and there's a kiss. Okay. Okay. But the two are never reconciled. And we're going to hear next week what Absalom's really up to. So the story of Absalom here, yes, in one sense, is a story of exile and return. But Absalom doesn't return. He's not the banished one that's restored. The reason is because the whole thing happened on their own terms. Not according to God's terms. Yes, God does devise means by which the banished one will not remain an outcast. He does. But David and Absalom ignore those means. They do it the way they want to do it. It fails. But God does devise means by which the banished one will not remain an outcast. And here we need to hear another story about two sons. Because we have all been banished from the presence of God because of our sin. And in fact, this is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. You've been banished from his presence. Your, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's where we are as sinners. We're in exile. We need to be restored. We need to be brought back. And Jesus told a story about two sons 
which is a story about exile and return. And it's the true story of exile and return. And it ends with a father and a son kissing. But it's not like Absalom and David. So you remember the story. We read it in Luke 15. Sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. But Jesus says there was a man who had two sons. And the younger son came to his father and he said, Father, give me my share of your property. Now what he's saying there is, give me my inheritance now. I want what's coming to me now. And actually the word there for property is literally the word for life. He's saying to his father, give me your life now. Now, of course, normally you receive your inheritance when your father passes away, when he dies. And so really what the son is saying is, I wish you were dead. As far as I'm concerned, you're dead. Give me your life now. Give me my inheritance. And the father father says, okay. He gives him his life. And you know the story, the, the, the son runs off, he, he sells all of his, his inheritance to, to get money, and then he goes off and he squanders the money in reckless living, it says. It doesn't specify what that reckless living was, but he squanders it fast. And then he finds that he has no money, he's got no food, he hires himself out to a pig farmer and he finds he's just sitting among the pigs And he's hungry. And he's longing even to eat the food that the pigs are given. Now kids, I don't know if you've ever been to a farm and you've seen a pigsty. You know where the pigs are? Can you imagine that was your home? And have you seen the little trough, you know, where the what what the pigs eat? Even if you've if you read Charlotte's Web, you know the pig gets all the slop and the garbage, and here you go, and he really likes it. But imagine that's what you were longing to eat because you were so hungry. And Jesus says he, he was hungry and no one gave him anything. Now, as Jesus is telling this story, the people listening to it would have thought, that's right, nobody gave him anything. It is outrageous what this son did to his father. What a scandal. What a humiliation to the father. Yes, no one gave him anything. That's right. He has made his bed, as we say. He needs to lie in it. And that's what's happened. And that does give us a picture of the consequences of sin. However much we might glorify sin or minimize sin, that is the reality of sin. That's where it takes us. Sitting among pigs. Starving to death. Then Jesus says, but he came to himself. He came to himself. Now this is part of repentance. If we are to repent, we need to come to ourselves. His circumstances held up a mirror and he saw himself and he recognized, okay, this is who I really am. He came to himself. But then he devises a plan. And at this point, his primary concern is he's hungry. His primary concern isn't that he needs to be reconciled with his father. He's hungry. And so he says to himself, Well, even in my father's household, the hired servants, they've got food. I will confess my sin. I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I will go to him. I will confess my sin. I will say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Treat me as one of your hired servants. Let me just come back and be one of your hired servants because the son knows, well, then I'll at least have a roof over my head. I'll have something to eat. So that's his strategy. That's his plan. And so he arose and he returned. It's a story of exile and return. Now here, here is the most beautiful and powerful point of Jesus' story. And this would have shocked the people listening to this story. So he says, and he arose and he came to his father. But, Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. As the son is returning to the father and he looks up, he sees his father is running out to meet him. Now we need to appreciate that first century context. Because for that son to go back to that village, that town, to return to his father, everybody seeing him would have been, you know, hissing and spitting. This is, this is the, the, the son who humiliated his son, or his father. But before the son can even come back into the community, the father runs out and meets him. He saw him. He's looking for him. And know this, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't know the Lord Jesus, know that he is looking for you. You know, sometimes we say, well, I found Jesus. Nobody finds Jesus. He finds us. He's not lost. We're lost. He finds us. And then it says, uh, Jesus says, he ran out to meet him. Now we think, oh, okay, like I run. My kids have seen me run before. Not in the first century. Men never ran in the first century. This is something that children did, and maybe women, sometimes women would run. Not a man. There's, there would be shame in running. It's dishonorable to run. No, you walk. You know, you're a man. You walk. He runs. You know, he picks up his, his robe and he runs. There's a beautiful detail. If you've seen the uh, Rembrandt's depiction of the return of the prodigal son, there's a beautiful detail there. If you look at the two hands of the father, you have this big, rough, strong hand, but then his other hand is smaller, it's tender. It's a woman's hand. And here the father does what a woman does. The woman would run out to see her son. Here the father does that. And we see here the, the compassion of God, of a father and a mother for the lost son. And then he, he, you know, it says he embraced him and he kissed him. And what's meant there is he actually tackled him to the ground. He grabbed him around the neck and he was kissing him profusely. And notice at that moment when the son gives his confession, it changes. His plan was, hey, I just want him to get, take me back as a hired servant. Never says that. He just says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be your son. He just leaves it at that. It's true repentance now. I'm just not worthy to be your son. Notice it was the compassion, it was the kindness of the Father that brought him to a place of repentance. And that's what Paul says. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the grace of God that leads us to repentance. When the son sees that, he repents truly. 
And then the father, you know, he, he hears the, the, the word of repentance, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father says, no, you are my son. And we know that because he says, put the robe on him. Put sandals on his feet. Put the ring on his finger. Take those tattered rags off of him. Put a robe on him. And the sandals were a sign that he was a son because in the ancient world, the servants would go barefoot. Put sandals on his feet. He's a son. He's my son. Put the ring on his finger. He bears my name. He's mine. Now, as we're reading the story carefully, there's a detail at the beginning of the story that we can't miss. Because we read there, Jesus says, the father divided his property among the two sons. Both sons. Here, younger son, you have yours. Older son, you have yours. So whose robe, whose ring, and whose sandals were put on the younger son? Well, it belonged to the older brother. It's one of the reasons he's angry. And we're not going to talk about the older brother. It's very important. It's kind of Jesus' point about the older brother. But they were his. And that's where we see the gospel in this story, because the Lord Jesus is our older brother. And that's why we began the service with Hebrews 2. He is bringing many sons to glory, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers. And the Lord Jesus puts his robe upon us. He puts his sandals on our feet. He puts his ring on our finger and he says, you are a son. He reconciles us to our heavenly father. And not only that, but he takes our tattered rags. He takes our sin. He takes our guilt. He takes that upon himself. He says, and here, be clothed with my robe, my righteousness, sandals in a ring, my sonship, I will go into exile. I'll be abandoned. I'll bear your shame, your guilt, your sin. Take what is mine. And then remember how... uh, Remember the next part of the story. It's not just that the son is clothed, but then he says, get the fattened calf. We are having a party. And we're told there, there was a great celebration. There was eating, and there was music, and there was dancing. Why? Because my son who was lost has been found. My son who was dead is now alive. You've been found. You're alive. Therefore, come and eat. Therefore, let us sing. And that's why every Sunday when we come and gather together, we eat. We come to this table. Because we were lost, but now we've been found. We were dead, now we're alive. That's also why we sing on Sundays. That's why there's music. Because we were lost and now we've been found. We were dead, now we are alive. And remember what Hebrews 2 says. It's not just that our Lord is not ashamed to call us brothers. But he says, I will sing your praise in the congregation. I will call my brothers around me and I will sing your praise in the congregation. That's why we sing on Sundays. Because the son is singing to his father and he calls us to join him in singing his praises. And not only that, how do we know that we are children of God? How do we know we've been clothed in the robe of the son and have his ring and wear his sandals? Because Paul says... We have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
And Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs one to another, giving thanks to the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have received the Spirit of adoption, we not only cry out, Abba Father, we sing, Abba Father. And so every Sunday we gather together, we sing, and we come to this table. There was a meal. Come and eat. And every Sunday we hear that declaration again. We hear God the Father saying, come and eat. You were lost, but now you've been found. You were dead, now you are alive. Come to this meal. And as we come to this table Sunday by Sunday, it is an affirmation, it is a confirmation that we are dearly loved children of our Heavenly Father. Yes, we were exiled. Yes, we were banished. Yes, we were outcast. But we've been brought back by the blood of Christ. And now we are sons. So let's come to this table now knowing that our presence at this table is a confirmation that we are dearly loved children of our Heavenly Father and that His Son is not ashamed to call us brothers. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.